are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you stand with me as we read the scripture for today? Our reading comes from Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn away, torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Thanks, Jerry. By the way, that whole thing with the mic was entirely my fault. I turned it off before I put it back, which is a really bad habit. Sorry, man. That's on me. Uh, Good morning. If we've never met, I'm Pastor Joey, one of the lead pastors here. We had originally planned for this morning to look a little bit different uh, than it has shaped up to be. Pastor Jeff has put together a short series in 1 John that we're excited about digging into, uh, helping us understand our identity as children of God, children of light and life. Uh, But with Jeff's brother Brad going on hospice this week and a lot of his extended family being in town, we all decided the best thing for Jeff and his family right now is just spend time with your brother. Uh, So we decided to push back just a little bit on that sermon series, and that gave us the opportunity to invite a guest speaker this morning, uh, Pastor Bruce, whom I'll tell you a little bit more about in just a moment. I met Bruce uh, about a year and a half ago. 
the elder executive board had given me the assignment of researching different trainings or classes or curriculums that we could implement at faith that would help us as a community be more evangelistically oriented in our outreach. Serving, yes, but also inviting people to new life in Christ. As, as we talked about uh, our church and where we felt God was drawing us to grow, this is one of the primary areas of helping us as an, as an entire congregation and be able to reach out to people and introduce the people that we know and love to the God that we know and love. Well, we eventually settled in on this group called Evangelism Shift, which is how I met Bruce. Uh, Pastor Bruce is the U.S. representative for this multinational organization. They work in Australia, Fiji, the Philippines, uh, Canada, the United States. And he and his colleague John North and Jeff have been here, uh, just finished leading the fifth of six weekend seminars with a group of 60 or so leaders from faith among our staff, elders, ministry directors, community group leaders. Uh, they've been helping us learn to live as witnesses in our everyday lives. Now, we're almost done with the first year of a three-year process with Evangelism Shift, so we'll all be getting to know Bruce and John a little bit more in the coming years. Now, a quick introduction about Bruce. Bruce is a farm kid from North Dakota who served as pastor of Devil's Lake Evangelical Free Church for 21 years. He's ordained in our denomination and brings a passion for evangelism and disciple-making to, to every teaching opportunity that he gets. So I'm excited to welcome Bruce uh, to come share with us a little bit about uh, what we've all been learning in the last year with eShift. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Joey. Well, thank you. It's a real privilege to be here this morning and to worship with the group in the first service and uh, to worship with you in this service is a real blessing. We've been here several times already and I just love the, the spirit and the sense that's here. I love the strategic uh, ideas that you have and, and the real passions that you have, not just to be a good, strong Bible teaching church, which you are, but to take that into our friends and relationships and neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, before I tell you a little bit more about our ministry, let me introduce you to my family. Just want to say hello from them. The picture behind me comes from a, a wedding. Uh, the first of our kids to get married was on New Year's Eve, just this last uh, December 31st. We have four children. Our oldest is 29 years old. Her name is Michaela. She's a physical therapist in Fargo, North Dakota. By the way, if you ever saw the movie Fargo, which I haven't, it was filmed in Minnesota, so we don't own it, okay? We don't like Minnesotans, so if you're from Minnesota, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but she's a physical therapist. Our two sons, uh, Landon and Chandler, uh, started a media company a couple of years ago. They do uh, videos for businesses and enterprises and things like that. They work together. These two brothers that hated each other growing up are now business partners. We don't exactly know how that happened. Uh, the younger of the two, Chandler, is the one who's in the middle there with his bride. Her name is Kaya. And she is from Minnesota, so yes, we do like Minnesotans now. Our youngest, the short one, is Sasha. She's 21. We adopted her from Russia when she was about two years old back in 2003. She's the one of our kids who still lives in Devil's Lake, and she's just ventured out into her first apartment with a, a roommate, and so kind of getting used to that. So my wife, Trudy, uh, we've been married just over 30 years, 31 this summer, uh, she works for an ag lending group called Ag Country, and so because of her job, she isn't able to come here, but I'm hoping at least at some point you'll get to meet her along the way. Uh, just really appreciate my family. Uh, but as, we, as Joey has introduced us, we're with Evangelism Shift, which is part of a larger global organization called Ambassadors for Christ International, 
And as he said, John North and Jeff Reed, both are here. Raise your hands a little bit so they can see where you guys are. John is the one from Australia who started this whole thing about six years ago. And as Joey said, it's in several countries. And it's just been about the last three or four years that it's been here in the United States. You are the fifth church uh, of what we really hope to see is a movement in this country. You and I are well aware of the issues going on. As I am, I watch the news and try to watch it not too much. And we really need this. We need to know strategically how to reach our friends and neighbors. And we have this as our mission statement. You can see this on the, the screen behind me. The mission of Evangelism Shift USA is working toward a disciple-making movement. So this isn't just an event. We want this to be part of something bigger that only God could produce. Of churches across the nation whose people have a culture, that's a key word, of living as witnesses in their everyday encounters, calling others to respond to him. So what we've told the people that we're working with, there's about 60 of you who are part of evangelism shift in this first year, leaders and spouses. We're beginning to teach the, the, the lifestyle of a witness, not just how to share your faith. But how would I live in such a way? And you know in our culture that confrontational evangelism would be a real challenge. And just the whole way that people are relating or not relating to each other, we, we want this to be a culture of how we live, that this comes out of how we, we, we strategically live our lives, engage with our friendships. You're going to be hearing more about this starting this summer and fall because what we've been doing with your leaders in the first year is going to go to a whole congregation as an opportunity this fall in something you're going to hear about called Life to Life. It takes the principles and practices that we've been teaching in year one and it puts it so that we're going to have little groups of three to four to five or six people, and we're going to do these same principles and practices together uh, on a weekly basis, and so you're going to be hearing more about that. But it is our passion, and it is our joy. Now, to, before I get to, and you're probably, if you were listening to the scripture being read, were there any of you going, I don't remember if I've ever heard that passage preached in church before. Like, how, how are you supposed to preach a passage like that? But that's the passage that came to mind when Joey called and said, would you guys, be, would you be willing to share with us on this Sunday morning? And the basic premise of, of this, you might not have picked it up from the story, and you probably didn't, is this. When our mission field is right at home. Now, I, I grew up in a very strong Bible teaching church in rural North Dakota, kind of legalistic, but very strong on the scriptures, but also a very strong missions-oriented church. We supported missionaries from all over the world. And, and as much as I loved those missionaries coming back from all different parts of the world and hearing their stories, there was a fear in me. And on, this is a confession on my part. This is my prayer. Lord, please do not send me to Africa. Do you know why I prayed that prayer? Every missionary that we had that came back from Africa told us stories about snakes. I hate snakes. I hate garter snakes. I can't stand to be around snakes. I said, Lord, don't send me to Africa, please. I'll go somewhere cold, where they, like North Dakota, uh, where they don't have a whole lot of snakes. But please, but I had this mindset of our mission field is somewhere over there. Did anybody grow up kind of like with that impression? And so I, I had that in my mindset, but here's the other thing that I learned about missions. Missions is for the professionals. And I knew that I wasn't a professional. Now, I didn't really think of Billy Graham as a missionary, per se. He certainly was a professional evangelist, but 
I grew up in the era where our family would park in front of our black and white TV and turn on a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade. Did any of you grow up in that era? You're probably all too young for that. I love that. He'd be in Russia, he'd be in China, he'd be somewhere in the world, and he'd give the altar call, just as I am, and they would sing. And what happened? People just filled the aisles, and they came down the aisles, and man, all these people got saying, this is awesome. And in my head, I was also thinking, man, it's a good thing that he's a professional. I could never be that. But I want to shift our thinking a little bit this morning to this. And this is the main premise that I want to give you. It's this. Sharing Christ is not just for the professionals. But it's for everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. Is anybody's uh, pulse starting to quicken a little bit? Anybody getting a little bit scared? Sharing Christ is not just for the professionals. I think you know that intellectually, but practically it's like, <laughs> not me. And, and for the, uh, it might not appear this way, but I'm an introvert. So I'll probably go home and take a nap this afternoon to recover from all this public stuff, right? Because, you know, does anybody else get nervous when you're in public a little bit? Nobody's admitting it. Do you all respond at all? <laughs> in the first service, they actually talked to me once in a while, so... I'm just kind of laying that out there. But, but here, here's why we get nervous when we start to, talk about, start to talk about evangelism. Three reasons. Number one, and help me answer this one if you don't mind. I'm afraid that somebody is going to ask me a what? Question that I don't know the answer to. Anybody have that fear? They're going to ask me about the Canaanites in the Old Testament and why they killed all the women and children and I still don't know what to say about that one, right? Or something like that. So we have this built-in fear about evangelism that that's what they're going to do. Here's the second thing. If I share the gospel with them, they might, anybody have an idea? They might reject me. They might not like me anymore. You know, we can talk about the weather, we can talk about sports, we can talk about farming, we can talk about your business. But to talk about Jesus, they, they might not want to talk to me anymore. And there's a third fear that I have, because I'm from rural North Dakota. The town that I live in is 7,250 people. That makes it the 12th largest city in North Dakota. <laughs> Think about that. We have 700,000 people in our whole state. We like our space. But here's the thing. I've lived, I've lived in North Dakota my whole life. I grew up 45 miles from where we live now, my whole life in there. Here's my other fear. I know these people. I was trained in how to share the evangelism on the street with a stranger. I can do that. It still scares me. Anybody understand that? But I live in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. I know half of these people. The hardest people to share the gospel with is people we know. The very hardest people to share the gospel with is people in our own family that don't know Jesus. You understand that, don't you? So we've got these built-in fears about what it means to be a professional or to be an evangelist or, or to be something like this, and I'm simply going to say that, that the key word in that little line that I gave you, that sharing Christ, the key word in that was the word sharing. If you have something that somebody else needs and you simply share it with them, that's not quite so scary. And what we're going to see in this little story in Mark chapter 5 is an example of that, but you're not going to see it till the end. 
So I'm going to share and unpack this story with you a little bit. And the basic premise is this, or the title of it is this, when your mission field is right at home. Yep, John North and Jeff Reed and I, we travel around, we work with churches. John travels globally. Man, it's pretty impressive. But we want you to come away this morning going, you know what? My mission field is right here. And because Jesus Christ is in me and the Holy Spirit is working in me and through me, and I want to honor the Father in this, I want to be a missionary. I want to be a witness for him right here at home. By the way, before we open our Bibles, and you can start doing that if you want, Mark chapter 5, I have a subtitle this message that I didn't put on the screen that I'm going to share with you, and it's this. You might want to write this down. The subtitle of this message is The Dumbest Strategic Decision Jesus Ever Made. Intrigued? At the end of the message, I'm going to share with you the dumbest strategic decision Jesus ever made. If you want to know what it is, you have to stay awake all the way to the end. So take your Bibles, Mark chapter 5, it was read for you. I'm going to simply work my way through this passage. I'm going to first give you a little bit of background while you're getting your Bibles open. We're in Mark chapter 5. If you go back to Mark chapter 3, it's going to seal like, oh, this must be at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Actually, it's not. It's actually in the last phase of Jesus' ministry when he's really getting his disciples ready to multiply in preparation for when he's going to be gone. There's there's only a series of months left. He's already appointed them as the 12. And in in Mark chapter 3, that's what he does. Also in Mark chapter 3, his family comes to him and says, Hey, Jesus, just come home. Nobody really believes you're the Messiah. You know, we grew up with you. Come on home. Like, How humiliating would that be for your family to do that to you? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is traveling around the area of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He's telling stories in parables. He's talking about the sower and the soils. He's talking about light not being hidden under the basket. He's talking about the seed growing, about the mustard seed. And then at the end of chapter 4 is a story that you heard in Sunday school, if you grew up in Sunday school. They get done with this long day of ministry. So this is right before what we're about to see here in chapter 5. They get to the end of the long day of ministry, the end of chapter 4, they get in a boat, it's late at night, and they venture across the Sea of Galilee, except what happens in the middle of the night? What starts to happen? A storm. And keep in mind that at least four of these guys are fishermen, so like, what's the big deal? By the way, my wife and I were in Israel uh, about two and a half weeks ago. We did the boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the most peaceful things I've ever experienced in my life. It's amazing. But not these guys. The wind is whipping. The waves are blowing. They think the ship is going to go down, except for one problem. Jesus is in the boat, and what is he doing? He's sleeping or crying out loud. What's the deal with that? So they wake him up, and they say, don't you care that we're about to drown? And Jesus gets up, and he simply says, peace be still. And what happens? And they're like, who is this? I happen to think, and this is my own little personal view on this, that at this point in his ministry and what he's been training, I think this is like a test. I think that as they're in the boat and the storm is going and Jesus is sleeping and they're reacting, it's like Jesus is saying, hmm, this was my, it wouldn't be a midterm test anymore. This is like a two-thirds term test to go, you guys have watched this, you've seen this, you're beginning to do this. Do you know who I am? Storm is calm. The boat ends up on the shore on the east side of the lake, and here comes our story. We'll unpack it in a a number of segments. The first one, 
I simply call the encounter. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles open. They, Jesus' the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, the, the other side of the sea means the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And you say, so what? Well, if you can picture in your mind the Sea of Galilee, kind of the, the north and the northwest would be the Jewish territory. The east is where the pagans live, the Gentiles live, maybe even the half-Jews, half-Gentiles. A good Jew going there, it could make you unclean just by being in that territory. You certainly wouldn't want to touch anybody or be around them. So the disciples have just come out of this storm. The, the, the waves have calmed. They're like, we got through that. And it's like, um, Jesus, do, do, do you know where we are? Are, 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 are? are we supposed to be here? So I want you to feel a little bit of this tension in your mind as this story begins. We don't know exactly where this town is, but we know that it's there on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, which is Mark's favorite word in his gospel, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Oh, great. We just came through this storm in the middle of the night. We just got through that. We're now on pagan side of the lake, and here comes this nut. He lived among the tombs. By the way, we sang this, I ran out of the grave. Does anybody want to do the motions for this guy coming running out of the tombs? I don't think that's the right application, is it? He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But look at this. He wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. That is supernatural strength. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always, always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What do you suppose his reputation in the community was? But can you imagine what it was like for him inside of his head? You know because we're going to see it here in just a minute. That's demonic. How many years had it been? I found myself wondering, was this guy married? Did he have kids? Certainly, he was well-known in the community that he was from. What do you think his reputation was like? But what do you think it was like for him to have this constant thing going on in his head, and he's trying to purge it out of himself by cutting himself. He's got scabs and infection. It's, he's naked. It's disgusting. I don't think they're going to make a movie out of this anytime soon. Because I don't know if we'd be allowed to go and see it. But this guy is in real, real trouble. Continues on in verses 6 through 8 with these words. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most, Woo, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? How did he know who that was? How did he know? The demons knew. I was trying to figure out what he's doing, falling on his knees before him. Because he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Because Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I, I, I can't say this for a fact, but one of the commentators that I read said, at least in this kind of demonic world, he isn't really worshiping by getting down and calling him out by name. There's something special in, in these ancient times about a person's name. It's their identity. 
And one commentator thought that by calling out Jesus by name, maybe the demons were saying that maybe we can gain control over you by calling out your name. So I don't think he's worshiping. But these demons are like, I wonder if in his human form we can call out his name and then maybe he'll be subject to us. And then he'll go away and leave us alone. I don't know. But it's a horrible scene, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable scene. It's like, ah, I didn't come to church to hear a story like this. And you say, what does this have to do with us? Well, pause on the story, and I want you to think about this. Let, let's see if we can get an example. I want you just to think about somebody you know that would be the very last person on earth to ever come to Jesus. Think of it. Somebody you know, maybe from work, maybe from the the. the the people that you know, the, the circles that you run in, you go, you know, <laughs> the world could split in half and she or he wouldn't come to Jesus. Can you think of somebody like that? The reason I have you think that is I just want to plant a seed to say, can God really save anyone? Someone like this or somebody like this person I know on my street or at my workplace who cusses a blue streak and has a life like this? Can God really save them? And, and behind that, could God possibly use me? Like, oh, no, I'm not trained for that. Oh, let's see. Let's see what the next part of the story says. This guy is about to be set free in verse 9. It says this, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? We're talking about names and the power of names. So Jesus asked his, he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And you kind of want to hear that with a, ooh. It's not really the guy's name. We don't believe that. We believe it's a spokesman of the demon. A legion would be the largest unit of a Roman army, which would be 6,000 soldiers. I'm not saying that there's 6,000 demons. There's more than one. Jesus says, what's your name? He says, my, my, our name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. It's like, where did that come from? They were trying to gain control over Jesus, and now they're saying, don't send us away and get us out of this country. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. This is how we also know that we're on the Gentile side of the lake, right? No good Jew is going to be around pigs, or they're not supposed to anyway. But I think the key word is in the next verse to show you who Jesus is and what authority he has. They've been trying, trying, trying to poke in, but look at what verse 13 says. So he gave them, somebody tell me what that next word is. Just say it out loud. He gave them what? Permission. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? They tried. They tried invoking his name. Again, if that's, that's what they were trying to do. But they also know now that didn't work. And so we know what we want to do. We want to know how, we want to, know how to get out of this, this ridiculous situation. But we're going to need permission. Man, I love that. It's not our authority that we speak to people. It's not our talents. It's not the things that we bring to the table. It is his authority. It's his life. It's his Holy Spirit. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, 
rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there's a few banks like that. There's one particular place where they think it might have happened, and it really is just this steep bank. It's not so much a cliff as it just runs right down to the water, and you go, man, can you imagine what it would be like to see pigs just rumbling, tumbling, bumbling, stumbling all the way down to the water and just drowning? By the way, I have a little question for you. As I've been reading this, tell me, where are the disciples? I challenge you to tell, find them. Here's my theory. They're still in the boat. If you've just come out of a storm and you've encountered this and you've know you got a B- minus on the test and you're already wore out from the night and the very first thing you see when you get the boat to shore is this screaming, raving maniac and Jesus getting out the boat, you're going to go, I think we'll just Stay right here. Peter, Yeah, you're always the one to go. Why don't you go check it out? I don't know. But I think this is also a test. What do you think? If Jesus was demonstrating his authority over the winds and the waves and, and what the deep waters represented chaos and the spirit world, if Jesus already demonstrated authority over that, what might Jesus be saying to the disciples now? Guys, do you know that I have authority over this world as well? Again, I don't know if they're in the boat, but you can't find any evidence for where they are. This, the demons have just asked permission. They've now gone down. The pigs are dead. I wonder what it was like for this guy. Here, here's what it says following this. Verse 14, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what, was ha- what had happened. Now look at, the, look at the change. And they came to the... Excuse me. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, just so we know we're talking about the same guy, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they... just, Just think about that picture first. Where did he get the clothes? That's how my brain works. I go, who shared some clothes with him? But it says he was clothed and in his right mind. Imagine being that guy. Just for a second. I know we don't even want to go there. But more than likely for years, he's been tortured mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually by these beings in his head. And all of a sudden, they're gone. I imagine it to be the difference. I don't know what downtown Indianapolis is like at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So I'll say downtown New York City at 5 o'clock. Horns honking, taxi drivers yelling at each other, people scrambling to get everywhere, just noise, 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 noise. And all of a sudden... He's sitting in a wheat field in North Dakota, and he's going, I don't hear nothing. Can you imagine what that was like for the first time in X number of years? I hear birds singing. I can hear the wind blowing. I just put myself in these stories sometimes and I go, oh my goodness, what a transformation. I didn't quite finish this verse, so let me finish this. So if you're reading along, make sure you read along because I want to make sure we get this right. Uh, Back to verse uh, 15. They came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they all confessed faith in Jesus Christ. They all got saved, they were baptized, and a great movement started that day. Is that how verse 15 ends? 
It's probably in the message paraphrase, right? That was a joke. I like the message, actually, for certain things. What, does it say? what is the last word of that verse 15? They were what? Why? Why? Let's go on. Verse 16. And those who had seen it described it to them, and what happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Why not? Again, we don't know if he had a family. We don't know if he had kids. We don't know how many years this has been going on. It was like, would you want to go back to them? What do they think about you? What do they know about you? What are you going to have to try to explain to them? Um, Excuse me, Jesus? Would you... Would you mind if I just came along with you? Isn't that a logical question to ask? Now, here's what I told you near the beginning. I said that this is the subtitle of the message. This is the dumbest strategic decision Jesus ever made with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Because look what happens in verses 18 to 20. He's going to tell them to go home, to share this at home. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home. Tell your story. I say this is the dumbest strategic decision Jesus ever made, tongue-in-cheek. Because think what, we, think what we would have done with this guy in the United States in the 21st century. You got a testimony, dude. You're going on tour with us. We're going to have you speak. We're going to do a movie about you. This is awesome. We're going to sell tickets. We're going to expand. the Jesus, you've been preaching to thousands. We're gonna, our crowds are going to be tens of thousands. If we bring this guy along with us, this is, more people are going to get saved. Right? So that's why I'm tongue-in-cheek saying, strategically, wouldn't you want to bring this guy with you? And Jesus says, go home. All I want you to do is tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. That's all. You don't need to be a professional. You don't need to do anything more than that. Just, just tell them. Just tell them. And the story wraps up in verse 20 with this. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Do you know who I just saw? Do you know what he just said? I don't know what you know about the Decapolis. Some of you know, some of you wouldn't, but it just means 10 cities. It's it's a group of 10 cities which... Nine out of the ten are east of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. One is on the other side. But it's, it's, it's Gentile territory. Jesus has just said, I want you basically to be my first missionary in Gentile territory. And all you have to do is share your story. And I found myself wondering, I, I wonder what kind of impact this guy had. If you were, and we're not going to go there, you can look at it when you go home, but if you were to go to Mark chapter 7, near the end of that chapter, in the first half or so of chapter 8, you're going to find Jesus coming back to the Decapolis. I don't know how much longer or how much later it was, but here's what we find when he gets there. 
Jesus first runs into a man who can't speak and who can't hear, and he heals him. Jesus then speaks to a crowd of 4,000, not, not the feeding of the 5,000. That was in a different place at a different time. He, he's talking to a crowd of 4,000. 4,000 people now want to hear Jesus' story. How did that happen? Could it be that it was this guy? Something is happening. Something is stirring. And all that to say what I said at the beginning, it, it is more than likely that your mission field is right at home. My mission field, my primary mission field is right at home. We, we need to, and, and I love missionaries who go everywhere around the world. Please don't hear what I, I'm not trying to say. But for 98 out of 100 of us, we're not going to go anywhere other than a few blocks or across the street or to our work or wherever that is. That's our mission field. And like Jesus told this guy, just tell them what your story is. Share your story with them. What the Lord has done for you and the mercy he has shown to you. I gave you this line at the beginning, sharing Christ is not just for the professionals, but it's for everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. You're sharing what you've been given. We're sharing what we've been given. And along with that, I add one tiny little deal before I wrap this up, <clears throat> and it's a realization I came to. I probably knew it intellectually many years ago, but practically it was this. And this isn't very profound, but it was to me. I can't save anyone. See, when I grew up, I, I was guilted into evangelism with lines something like this. If I don't share the gospel with them and they go to hell, whose fault is it? Mine. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I better tell somebody about Jesus. That, that, nobody ever said that, but that's what I picked up. Have any of you picked up on that yourself? You feel that guilt? Thank you. I see that hand just barely. That is not what God wants for us. He says, has your life changed? Do you have a story to share? My story is boring. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up in a good church. But I've been changed. I'll leave you with this example. A couple of years ago, I've been trying to live this life. I, I want to I walk out the door every day with a sense of being sent. I, I'm on mission. It's what, if you've been part of evangelship, you've been hearing this language. Our antenna are up. Everywhere we go, every phone call we take is like, Lord, however you want to use me. I've got this eye doctor that's become a friend. He's been my eye doctor, I don't know, for 10 years or so. Great young man. And uh, a couple of years ago, I had some floaters in my eye. I didn't know what it was, freaking me out. I go in to see him and, and um, sits me down, and he says, you know, I'm going to dilate your eyes. I'm going to take a really careful look. He, I'm a details guy. He likes me because whenever I have an appointment, it's always the full hour because he's like, do you want to see, like, pictures of the back of your eye? Can I show you these charts about how the blood flow works? And I'll, yeah, dude, show me all that. Anyway, so he he puts the drops in my eye. It takes about 15 minutes for your eyes to dilate. Normally, he'll go see another patient while he's doing that. But this time, he stayed, and he sat there, and he goes, um, do you ever take personality tests? I'm like, yeah, I love them. You know, I'm analytical, so sure. He goes, do you know what yours is? I go, yeah, well, the last one I did was like this. He goes, well, that's similar to mine. I'm like, where is this going? And he goes, uh, 
I just got divorced a not long time ago, and I'm trying to get my life back together and figure out he's got two little kids. I'm sitting there in his eye doctor chair with my eyes dilating going, he's telling me his story. I didn't even say anything. We go on with the examination. We talk. The funny thing is this. <laughs> that morning, he had been on my heart. And so I asked my wife, I said, why don't you pray? Would you pray with me? I think I want to ask this guy and see if he has time for lunch after my appointment. Like, why would he answer that? So he, he's unpacking some of his story with me. And I go, <laughs> at the end, he, you know, he tells me, nothing to worry about with it. It looks fine. Your brain's going to forget about these floaters, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, this is going to sound weird, but um, actually I had on my mind before I came today, I was going to invite you out for lunch afterwards. Would you like to talk more? And he goes, yeah. And I said, I, I don't know when you'd be free. He says, how about tomorrow? We had lunch the next day. He hasn't come to Jesus yet. This is, I live in this community. I'm going to see him at least every year. And about every couple of months, I'll say, hey, we haven't had lunch for a while. You want to catch up? See, that's not very professional, is it? but I'm building a relationship with this guy. And here's the thing. I really care about him. I want so much for him to come to Jesus. He's, I wouldn't want to say anything that would come back to him because I really care about him. Do, do you think you could do that? Do you think you could do like Jesus said to this guy, could you just go home and share your story? Could, could you let God use you in some very simple way? neighbor that you, you've been meaning to meet, but you haven't made any intention to, uh, a co-worker that you, you heard there was a, a physical, you know, an illness or a situation where you can just say, hey, I heard about this and I, you know, I'd like to pray for you. Can you imagine if every one of us, young, older, male, female, doesn't matter who we are, where we live, if, if we'd have that mindset, what God could do? Everything I'm learning about your church, you are a super strong Bible-teaching church. I love that. We need that these days. <laughs> we need to take the stuff that we know and take it to the people that we engage with and just watch God open doors and open hearts and even God for opening up our mouths to say something at just that time. Heavenly Father, thank you for Faith Church and what you're doing in them, what you're doing through them. Thank you for their desire to live on mission as a way of life, not just a task to do to check off a list or to do it out of guilt, but to do because you have loved us. You gave us your life. And so we celebrate that. We honor that. And we thank you even for goofy stories like this in the Bible that whether it makes us comfortable or not, there's something in here that says, I want to do that. I want to share what's been given to me. In your name I pray, amen. Mr. Joey, you bet. With this Sunday morning, I thought I'd just take a few minutes to kind of share uh, from my heart pastorally just what I've been experiencing with evangelism shift in the last year. Because I, I love our church. I love our church. I love the mission of our church to form informed and winsome ambassadors. I mean, that's what God has called us here to do. But we're not called to form these types of ambassadors so that we can be on display like at a museum. 
for people to you know, buy tickets and, and come see what we look like. The, the point of being winsome, is, as our, our former pastor Bob would put it, the point of being winsome is to win some. So that we would introduce people to life in Christ through the ministry of faith, through the people of Faith Church, not going out and trying to be professional evangelists like Bruce said, but just interacting with the people God has already put in our lives and being, you know, having our eyes open to the people God is introducing into our lives, loving them, learning to love them, and then loving to introduce them to the God that we love. Uh, that's what I've been learning over this, this last year. Now, I don't know if statistics motivate you, but they motivate me, so I'm going to share a couple uh, we're, we're a church that our, our sort of our tribe, our people, you know, the, the number of folks that we've got coming on a Sunday morning is we've kind of reached an equilibrium or, or even a sort of a growth trajectory of a little bit at a time, which is great because a certain number of people move away every year or start going to a different church for one reason or another. And we're replacing that with other people who are coming and finding uh, Faith Church and finding faith to be a great place to rest, to serve, to grow, to uh, find community and find connection with one another, which is awesome. I love that people are finding faith that rest place where they can grow and serve. But it's primarily other Christians who are finding Faith Church, which means we're a really healthy church. We're just a really healthy transfer growth church. You know what I mean by that phrase? It means churches or, or Christians are transferring from other churches to our church, which again is great when they're coming and finding a place to rest and to grow and to serve and to grow in community. That's what we want to do. Uh, but any group, any church that isn't introducing new people to life in Christ is, as one missiologist says, one person who writes about mission and evangelism and stuff like that, any church that is not introducing people to new life in Christ is living its last chapter. And I'm not okay with that. And our elders, our elder executive board, as we've talked about the future of Faith Church, we are not okay with the idea that, hey, we're closing out the book. This is the last chapter at Faith because, you know, people are finding us, but people aren't finding new life in Christ through us, or at least not to the levels that we would kind of expect from a healthy conversion growth church. Different than a transfer growth church, right? A transfer growth church is bringing people and discipling them and helping them uh, grow in Jesus. A conversion growth church is, is finding people who are looking desperately for what, what do I, I need? There's something I need in this world. And they're saying, I, I don't know what it is, but it seems like you guys have it. And then we get to tell them about Jesus and introduce them to life in Christ. A healthy conversion growth church we'll see, this is what statistics and people who study these things tell us, we'll tend to see about 5 to 10%, this is for like Western culture, United States, about 5 to 10% of the adult attendants coming to Jesus, finding new life in Christ in any given year. Now, that doesn't mean 10% of you are pagans. Who need it? Well, maybe it does. I don't know. But uh, generally what that means is like, okay, hey, if there's 500 or so adults here, it was a big round number. There's 500 or so adults here. We could, if we were a healthy conversion growth church, expect to see 25 to 50 people finding new life in Christ every year. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine 5 to 10 People who don't know Jesus, have never met him before, but who are desperately broken, finding life in Christ, plugging into faith church, being connected with others in disciple-making relationships, and growing in that new life in Jesus. What kind of uh, energy and life for Christ we would have at faith. 
Again, as the elders and the elder executive board have been talking about this, I'm like, God's desire for faith church is, yes, for us to preach the Bible and be committed to Bible teaching, to, to preach Jesus weekly and in everything else that we do. But it's not just for us to get stronger or grow deeper. It's for us to get stronger, grow deeper, become informed and winsome ambassadors so that the people we interact with on a daily or weekly or yearly basis, where our eyes are open to seeing that maybe God is just asking me to be open to talking to them about Jesus, to be willing to go home and tell our friends what God has done for us and the mercy that he's shown to us. So as we talked about eShift a little bit, you know, we're about a year into this three-year thing. There's going to be opportunities coming over the summer and especially into the fall for you all to get uh, involved. This is not like I'm not asking you all to sign up for a new program or something right now or, or put your signature on a dotted line or anything. Uh, but we'll present opportunities for you to learn some of the same principles that we've been learning. Just as we learned in our seminar yesterday, it's important for us as leaders to first become what we want to multiply or see multiplied in the congregation. Uh, so we have been on this year-long journey, praying regularly, God, who are you sending me to? Where are you sending me? Uh, where is the gospel message sending me into the world, and to whom am I being sent? So if you're willing to just even consider that prayer for yourself, that's all we ask, is that you start asking yourself regularly or praying regularly, God, where are you sending me? Is there someone you're sending me to? Is there some place that you're sending me to? Is there someone or multiple someones uh, that I just need to be open to talking more about you? This isn't, we're not talking about targeting people. We're not talking about, you know, learning sales pitches. We're not talking about professionalizing evangelism. What we're talking about is introducing the people we love to the God that we love because we love them and we want them to know. We have found peace with God, having been reconciled to him through the blood of his son and having been reconciled to one another. And we simply want to introduce other people to that same peace because that's what, at, at the root of everything else that they're struggling with, that's what their hearts are longing for. And we found that peace. It's one of the reasons we say at the end of every service, go in peace, take the peace with you as you love and serve the Lord. Because he's sending us to someone. And as Bruce reminded us, they're probably right in our own backyards. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.